Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast with me, Scott Chaloner. This podcast, just like the Leaders' Council itself, is all about recognising and celebrating those people who keep this country running. We exist to give leaders a voice outside of their own organisations and to support them in the same way that they support their staff every single day of the week. If you are in a leadership position yourself and would like to have your voice heard on the national stage, then please do go to leaderscouncil.co.uk forward slash apply. Now, joining me on the show today on what is a warm spring morning here in the capital is Sarah Maltby. Sarah is the Director of Attractions at the York Archaeological Trust and is responsible for leading all of the Trust's York-based museums and events, including the renowned Jorvik Viking Centre. Uh, Sarah, very warm welcome to yourself today and thank you ever so much for joining us. You're welcome. It's a real thank pleasure you welcoming you. Real pleasure. Um, and I suppose, Sarah, we should address the uh, the elephant in the room here uh, to start with, and that is the fact that although we are slowly moving out of social restrictions at the time we're recording this, which is early June 2021, just for the listeners, um, we are still very much in the grip of the global COVID-19 pandemic and have been for the best part of 14 months. And it's had a tremendous impact on your industry, hasn't it? So to what extent has all of this by and large affected you and affected your organisation? Well, as you say, it has affected us a great deal. Um, we, as, as most people will know, the museum and arts and culture sector um, was more or less closed for the last um, year or so. Um, so we have been um, in lockdown, in and out of lockdown as, as everybody else, um, which has meant a huge impact, particularly for organisations such as, as ourselves, York Archaeological Trust. We are an independent charity and we do rely specifically uh, for our museums on on people's um, uh, on tickets, basically people coming to visit us. So the loss of that income and all secondary income, you know, the retail, the schools income in particular, because that's a huge part of of, uh, of what we um, w- what we gather in, um, has gone. So um, so last year, for example, you know, we were closed from March right through until the summer. We had a Fairly decent summer. We and I think we did we did better than some colleagues in other um, institutions across the across the UK. So we were getting about seventy five percent of the normal uh, level of visitors that we would have got during the summer. So it wasn't mm. too bad. Um, and then of course we had to close again, and then <laughs> uh, for the for the second lockdown, open again over Christmas briefly, and then close again obviously in January. So. Um, I think the impact for us has been this uncertainty. Um, you know, we rely on people coming. York is a very big tourist destination, as you will appreciate. And I think that uncertainty um, had a knock-on not only to us, but across the city um, and the other museums and cultural institutions that are here in York. So, um, yeah, it's been a difficult year, not only for the for the survival of the trust itself, but obviously for the for the team that I manage, um, you know, them not knowing what's happening really from one month to the next. Um, but hopefully, you know, we're now back out of lockdown. Um, we're fully open again, albeit under social distancing conditions, and um, we're going to see where we go now. Yeah, it's certainly going to be an interesting period to see how the sector by and large fares, and I would like to discuss that shortly. Um, mentioning the team there that you work with, Sarah, I can imagine that particularly in the earlier days of the crisis, you had to manage an awful lot of anxiety and perhaps one or two well-being issues there as well. So 
How was that for you as a sort of leader, if you will, in your position? Um, it, it was tricky, um, particularly at the beginning, because there was a lot of uncertainty before the furlough was introduced, for example. So we we, we asked everybody to leave and <laughs> sort of sit at home, if you like, for a few weeks before that, that came in. We did pay people. You know, we made that decision very early on um, as a senior management team um, so that people had that certainty. Um, and and we managed them quite closely throughout the whole whole period. Um, it was very important, obviously, while we were closed and people weren't in contact with us because the entire team was put on furlough, apart from I guess myself and a couple of others who we kept on to keep an eye on on the buildings, if you like. Um, everybody else was at home for the vast majority of the lockdown on furlough, so not working. Um, so it was one of the most important things that I felt that I needed to do throughout the entire time was communicate with them and um, mm. and make sure that they knew what was going on, make sure that they, they were in contact with other people because some people obviously living on their own, not having families. Um, I've got a lot of younger people on my team. So, you know, um, th- there was that issue to sort of contend with. So I did make the decision very early on to have weekly meetings with them. Um, I sent a weekly newsletter um, every Friday at the end of the week, a sort of chatty newsletter, an email, whereby they could also contribute and and talk to each other. Um, We also did training, which obviously we're allowed to do on furlough. So um, we, because we've got a lot of contacts across the academic world, we were able to get a lot of experts, if you like, to come in and just, for, for free and and do um, sessions for us so that everybody could log in, have a chat and learn something new. So that was that was a really important thing, I think, as a leader, you know, making sure people were confident, they were communicated with, they weren't isolated. Those sort of, of, of things were, were very much at the forefront of my mind throughout the whole of, of last year, which um, I'm sure is the same for, for a lot of leaders in my position. And you mentioned that L word there, learning something new and having the opportunity to do that. And I think, albeit it's been such an immensely challenging and quite tragic time for an awful lot of people, so many in particularly leadership positions have come away having learnt a lot from this pandemic experience, haven't they? Because it's so unprecedented. Uh, Would you say that's the case for you and that you come away having learnt something from this and you're in a way stronger for that experience? I would definitely say that, yeah. Um, I think, you know, as I say, doing that sort of level of communication really stressed to me how important it is. Not not just in lockdown when people were spread across, you know, the, the city and, and at, at home, but, but now, you know, we have three museums, we have um, an event team, we have other teams that are kind of quite remote. And, and obviously at the moment, people are still working at home, albeit those people that, that aren't sort of running in front of house of our uh, museums and attractions. So communication, I think, is a lesson learned to me, how important that is and how important it is to continue that. And and this, uh, you know, and, and giving people something new and something different. You know, people in museums, my, my team, particularly the front of house, they're so dedicated and they're so enthusiastic. They do the same things every day. You know, they meet and greet people. They, they tell them about the past and they have to keep that, that level of enthusiasm up. So I think helping them, um, you know, to, to discover something new, to, to have new experiences as well is really important going forward so that you, you, you know, you, you keep the team, you encourage the team and you give them the enthusiasm that they need. 
It's hugely important, isn't it? And uh, just sticking on the well-being side of things for just a moment, we've been discussing an awful lot within the Leaders' Council in uh, recent weeks um, about the importance of sort of CEOs and directors and their well-being as well, because I suppose it's very easy, particularly in a crisis, to get caught up in the mentality that I have to worry about looking after everybody else. They're looking up to me, essentially, as the head of this organisation. And it can be easy in that environment to sort of neglect your own well-being can't it so when you Sarah have to sort of step back a little bit and recharge the batteries yourself is that something you find quite easy to do um I wouldn't say it's easy no um you know I am very passionate about what I do um and I know I know that you know a lot of my um off off work time is, is spent thinking about work and I think I'm not I'm not um you know, I'm not. I'm not dissimilar to a lot of people in my position. So yeah, it is. It is difficult, and particularly this last year has been difficult because, um, as I say, you know, most of the team, most of my team have been on furlough. Mm. Um, most, of the, which includes my senior managers. We have a senior management team across the trust, which is our chief executive, obviously, and our, our head of finance and our head of archaeology. So as a team, the four of us. I think have become very close over the last year because we were the ones sort of at the at the at the cold space sort of thing trying to keep everything going. Um, but time to sort of consider your own personal well-being, I think, has been in short supply mm. um, this last year. And I'm certainly in need of a holiday. I must admit, just now, um, because you know you've got. I think, as you've pointed out, you know, you've got things going on at home as well and you have to deal with that. You have, I have family, you know, that, that, um, we, we've have to get through this, this, um, this last year with them. So I think it's, it is difficult for leaders particularly, or it has been difficult for leaders this last year because the focus has been on let's make sure the business survives. And that has been a key thing for us. Mm. As, as I mentioned, you know, without the visitors, without the people paying us their tickets, without the schools coming in. Money, uh, our cash flow has been pretty dire or it was last year so that's been a huge worry making sure all the team's okay has been a worry and there is you know very little left for yourself so I, I, I really do appreciate when I talk to other people um, in similar uh, levels of authority you know that that it, that it has been an issue for people mm. uh, and, and their own health and well-being probably have suffered I think mine has I think that's true to say yeah, it is difficult, isn't it? Just sort of trying to balance everything out. When you're in survival mode, I suppose it's not necessarily something you think about, is it? And hopefully there'll be a little bit more scope for those in positions of responsibility to consider that more over the coming months now that we're starting to move out of this, hopefully. And that is something that I would like to talk about now as well, because um, a very pessimistic individual may well say, oh, like, it's going to be difficult for the industry by and large, even with restrictions lifting, because it's going to take some time for public confidence to return. However, what we have seen as restrictions have been lifted is people are so eager to get out, aren't they? And sort of get doing the things that they've missed so much over the last year because of the challenges of holidaying abroad. There's a domestic tourism boom predicted in the UK this summer. So it could well be time for a little bit of optimism within the art, culture and leisure industry, couldn't it? I think you're absolutely right. Um, we're just coming through half term at the moment and we've seen a huge influx of people. Our bookings have gone through the roof. We've had to extend our opening hours because of social distancing. We can't get as many people in. Um, those people that have visited Jorvik in the past know 
that we are known for our queue that normally sort of threads around the shopping centre where we're based. Mm. Um, obviously, we've not been able to do that. So we, we, in order to accommodate the number of visitors that do want to come back, as you rightly say, we've actually opened and we've been open till 8 o'clock at night this last week. So I think there is um, room for optimism. I think people do want to come out and come back. Um, we are lucky. We're based in York. And it is a tourism hotspot. There, there are loads of things for people to do. So, you know, the fact that people are coming here for their holidays is great because we're all benefiting from that. We just have to get it right in terms of, you know, um, social distancing, as I say, and, and dealing with with all, everything that goes with the with the period that we're in now, coming out of, of um, the pandemic, hopefully, um, and lockdown. But I do think there's there's room for optimism. I also think within the sector. What we've learned over the last year is there's other things we can do. We can operate differently. Um, so, for example, as I say, we can we can still get the numbers of people through that we would normally have, and we get about 400,000 visitors a year at Yorvik, for example. We can still get those visitors through, but we have to adjust how we operate. So we have to open earlier, we have to open later mm. to give people the comfortable experience that they need. Um, but also, you know, we uh, during lockdown, we developed a whole new program of digital um, outreach, both for schools, um, so learning in, in classroom and learning at home. Um, you could you could talk to one of our Vikings via those sessions, but also um, events that we've put on digitally. We did a, we did an event in February, which we called that Yorvik Viking Thing, which was our usual Viking festival, which was a live festival that normally attracts about 50,000 visitors into the city in February. We did that as a virtual uh, event. And our, our, the response was huge. You know, we got millions of people from across the world, not only the UK, but from across the world, joining in sessions with Vikings, um, workshops, where you could weave things or make your own leather Viking bag, for example, or conferences. So we did a huge range of, of activities, some paid for, some free, but there was a, a massive uptake, as I say. So I think, you know, we've learned huge amounts from that. And so in the future, we will be back open and we will be physically welcoming people to our, our museum. But also we're going to continue with that digital activity because it does widen the world up for us and that's been a good thing that's been one of the good things that's come out of this this last year i think that's very right i think this sort of new development in technology and this realization that we can do things flexibly and digital is a new avenue i think that is something that has come about out of necessity initially during the pandemic but is going to be here now as part of the status quo in a hybridized approach in a lot of sectors i think that's absolutely right and thinking about sort of that approach going forward that two-pronged approach if you like um under the pretense of course that we're emerging from lockdown now and we're not going to go backwards where is it sarah that you you'd ideally like the trust to be this time in a year um, with all of that in mind just before we wrap things up? Um, I'd like to be back where we are, you know, in terms of our physical visitors. I'd like to um, be in a, a more certain place that we know that come the summer, come the, the holidays, we are going to get the visitors back in the numbers that we'd previously seen. Schools, I'm hoping come September, when everything, I think, hopefully will have um, calmed down a little bit and, and there's a bit more certainty in terms of children being back in school, we, we benefit a lot from the schools coming out to us. So that's that's one of the markets that we want to see a bit more stability in and know that, that teachers can book with confidence with mm. us. 
But as you say, equally, um, this sort of hybrid approach using digital, using virtual um, outreach, using, uh, you know, the, the, the methods that we've developed over the last year will create new audiences for us. And we're certainly looking a lot further outward. We're looking to those international markets in, the, in uh, North America you know, uh, across to Australia even, where we have delivered some of the sessions. But I think that is a growing market for us and it's something we're definitely exploring now. So I think, you know, even though it's been difficult, it has been a very difficult year, I think we can we can honestly say that there have been some good things for the sector and certainly for the trust that have come out of it, luckily. And uh, we can move forward in a very positive way. Plenty of lessons learned and hopefully now the start of a real renaissance period for the industry as well. Um, Sarah, I have to say it's been a real, real pleasure welcoming you onto the show today um, to get a little bit of a glimpse as to what's been going on in the industry by and large. And I think as we start to understand more of how the sector's moving over the coming months, it could even be wonderful to welcome you back onto the show just to catch up on how things at the Trust are getting on. That'd be great. Yeah, I'd love that. Thank you. I'd thoroughly relish that opportunity to you, Sarah. Once again, thanks ever so much for joining us and do take care and stay safe with all still going on just as we emerge from this. Thank you. And you. It was a pleasure for me to welcome Sarah Mulby, Director of Attractions at the York Archaeological Trust, onto the programme today. Uh, coming up next on the show, we'll be keeping it educational because former Education Secretary and our incumbent chairman, Lord David Blunkett, is going to be joining us on the programme to discuss his take on the current pandemic situation and what he hopes for the next 14 or so months. Uh, that will be coming up next. Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you. Um, well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19, uh, which uh, we must touch on. Um, what would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage Obviously, take advantage as far as you can of the government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected Mm -hmm. in the circumstances. There are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks. Those who uh, don't have um, defined premises, can't benefit from the business rate waiver, uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff and, of course, whether they can receive the the grant, 10000 or 25000 all, all of those who can uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who, who did once do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world and being able mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative, they're having to adjust and innovate Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways 
of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. And in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to, but we'll probably have a burst of productivity, mm -hmm. which will help with the recovery, whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced, both between services and product productivity and, and the production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is, as far as humanly possible, is dealt with by both uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help, which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're, we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and mm -hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who mm -hmm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, we'll be able to see that there's a, a, a good outcome from n knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. And, of course, um, ensuring, because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks, that they'll also take account of going into the, the cybersecurity side effectively as well. The more we are online, the more people who are working from home, the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become. And that's something to think about as well. How important is strong leadership at the moment? Well, I actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from Obviously, government itself, and there's been ups and downs, but all the way through the public and private sector, people have, to use the jargon, stepped up. And they've shown uh, local, regional, national level the kind of leadership that Britain historically was very good at. Regrettably, we've not seen, seen the same on the international scene for mm. all kinds of reasons. Uh, but maybe we will in future. So I think out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, service or goods, uh, including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care uh, system, uh, the food chain and the like. Uh, but also, I think, in terms of seeing the the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's uh, commitment to each other in a very positive way. I, I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert. Mm -hmm. But actually, I think there is a, a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in. 
And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said, a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it Mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We we may have seen the signals elsewhere uh, across the world and taken them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing. But as someone who's uh, had his life in uh, the opposite uh, political party to the, the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a, in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's, it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the, the UK and, um, and the US, and to some extent to the Scandinavian countries, have a very different interest, uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and mm. consent that's required. Uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually, uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 structures that have been put in place. What have they done right and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead mm. or people being told that they you know, shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chipping people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we we think the police force in our area has gone over the top. And that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That's another strength of... um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. 
Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice. Uh, The health secretary often chairs COBRA meetings uh, related to health. Uh, Does this tally with your experience as a secretary of state, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different prime ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows. Those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust, and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to to demonstrate their capability. So I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because Mm -hmm. my experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue. All of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated their inadequacy, I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Dominic Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, Well, it's certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated. Mm -hmm. Scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London? But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. Uh, Rightly so. Um, Now, was pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Right. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond. We did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and and real, on the back of that. It was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh where the university had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And, of course, we we saw SARS and other things emerging. 
I, I think it would, people criticised the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in. You deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You you can you can sponsor reports. And this is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack, what happens if there's an energy shutdown. Sh- um, these kind of things you, you can look at, but you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations that we don't have a vaccine for, mm-hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or, for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for the for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened but very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself. Some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, mm-hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a, uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food. A lot of it on computerized, uh, technologically advanced systems. If that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think again, thinking of thinking global but acting local, we Mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope. And without, uh, obviously we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without creating even more anxiety, we can think about those things for the future in a more rational way, I think. Now, aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus, one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy, not just national economy, but also the world economy. Um, now, it, it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be the prolonged I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up, not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges and they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives 
for a variety of reasons, are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the, the immediate handling of the pandemic, concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19, those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated, that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, remember, a chancellor who had only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well, understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months. We, we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019. I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. And therefore, we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002, when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is led in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm -hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect. And what happens with one will then have a major impact on another. And then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected. So I very much, if I were in government, and I always think of things in that context, what would I do if I were in government? I would be on the side from... The second week in May, on the side of the Hawks, in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently. Let's try and get back, perhaps, you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual. Unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately 
get pushed further into the middle of the year and the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently are the changes in the uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr. Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, a, a credible opposition nor a, an electable government and the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. Sir Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent uh, professional lawyer who as Director of Public Prosecutions led the service well uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn mm-hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made Shadow Foreign Secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and uh, the the disaffected uh, former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakir has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. And I believe he will be both a, a great leader of the opposition more importantly, will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, It was true of us from 97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did, and the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition, as well as a government that we clearly want to do well, because none of us want, as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty, and we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role, and that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector, people with ideas, with confidence, with the ability to pull teams around them, above all, to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it. What's the one king, uh, key thing that Sakir needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Sakir Starmer's major challenge is to convince sceptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, Mm -hmm. but also 
that the lessons have been learned from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed as it did in the 1980s and early 90s to become the electable government with the greatest majority and historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, do you think Secure has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to have put a team around him which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, the ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, the Leaders' Council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, uh, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn from mm-hmm. each other. That is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank well, you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, really thank you for coming on the, uh, the program. It's been a, an absolute pleasure and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Blunkett. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.